session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolaku, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. few announcements to start the show. First, the book of the week. It is called The Great Leveler by Walter Scheidel. The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. So in a way, it's a historical account of the economics of inequality uh, throughout the course of history. Uh, and about 60 pages in, it's very fascinating, very dense, as often books like this about economics and um, history can be. But it's very interesting, as I mentioned on Monday's show, uh, my father had seen this book discussed on Fareed Zakaria on, I believe, CNN. And um, uh, so I, I joked on Monday that I won't even be the first Fareed to be talking about this book, but looking forward to it, uh, to finish reading and sharing with you on Monday's show. The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century by Walter Scheidel. And then also this coming Monday, I will be on a panel that is hosted by the Iranian student group at UCLA. It's called a panel on mental health. That's this coming Monday, October 26th from 6 to 7 p.m. It will be on Zoom and it's open to the public. So anywhere in the world, 6 p.m. Los Angeles time this coming Monday, you can join. I will be on a panel with uh, Dr. Nasreen Bashiri, who is a child adolescent an adult psychiatrist. So the two of us will be uh, having a panel on mental health. A big thank you to the Iranian student group at UCLA for inviting me to participate. Hope to see you virtually uh, this coming Monday, October 26, 6 p.m. All right, so on Monday's show, I had shared some thoughts, uh, actually did a whole segment on a documentary or docu-series I had seen this past weekend called The Vow, which uh, looks at a, well, you know, if you call it a cult, that's obviously your judgment of it, and it really did turn into a cult, but a type of self-help group or self-transformation group called Nexium or ESP that was headed by Keith Rainieri. And it was really fascinating. To me, I'm always interested to see these types of documentaries that explore a um, understanding of people and what they are going through or how they get to a certain point. And so seeing how people get enamored and sucked into this cult and how it affects them was quite interesting to me, and I really enjoyed it. I think it was very dark at times, very twisted to see how things went down, but also very interesting and fascinating. So 
It's called The Vow, and it was on HBO, uh, nine episodes. And so I wanted to talk a bit about cults or these types of groups, and they're not the same things where people go in for self-help or transformation. There are many of them out there. And I am not in a way saying all of them are bad or have bad intentions, and definitely not all of them are cults, or as this one was sometimes called a sex cult because some of the practices that started happening within a select members or smaller group of the members of the group. Um, but wanted to share some of my thoughts on various aspects of it, from the individuals who get into it, and also to the individuals that started and the heads of these types of groups, because there are certain patterns that we tend to see that can be important to keep in mind because we get sucked into these things and it's almost like you get into an alternate reality and over time you lose understanding of what even is going on and because you have this new reality, everything seems different. And so when you look from the outside at someone who is in this type of a group, you might have a certain thought that how could that happen? But that's why I wanted to talk a bit about that side as well, not just the people at the top and what they're doing and their nefarious intentions and what's going on, but also people who join. Because this idea of an alternate reality that I just mentioned, we have to also keep in mind, we talk about reality like it's this clear thing that can be identified, but we all have distortions in how we view things and even coming up with one set reality is not so simple. And so we all see things in certain ways and that can hopefully help just in an initial way of looking at someone who might join a certain type of group to think as much as I might think I would never get sucked into something like this. There's already some beliefs we all hold on to or ways of thinking, ways of looking at someone or something that probably are exaggerated, not exactly accurate twisted, even could be seen as delusional. I, I sometimes argue that everyone virtually holds on to something that could be uh, considered a delusion, meaning some type of thought or belief that doesn't match what we consider objective reality. So that's just something to keep in mind when we hear these stories of people who join these groups, that um, they're not somehow so different. There might be some tendencies that make people more likely to join um, a cult, let's say, or a group like this, or even want to go in for this type of a, a group. But it doesn't mean they're necessarily so different from, from everyone else. So these self-help groups very often, uh, or these transformational groups, uh, one thing I mentioned Monday and I'll add again, there's often a lot of good in them. By that I mean everything they teach is not bad and wrong. There can be things, and I was watching a documentary and saying, okay, I actually think that's interesting insight. I agree with this part. Some parts I might say differently, but there was things that were good and people do actually see some improvements in their life. It does help people in certain contexts and in certain ways. Not always in the way that it's presented that if you do this course, your whole life will be different. And anyone who tells you something like that or you hear something like that, you should always be wary. We, of course, like to think there could be this quick, miraculous fix to change everything and make our lives better. It would be nice if that were the case. But the truth is, there almost never is really something like that. And we should be skeptical with anyone who makes us think something is so easy, that changing ourselves is so easy, or um, that somehow becoming a new person or fixing 
our life in some way is going to be simple. When they sell us something that sounds too good to be true, we better be skeptical about it. I don't like to say something is impossible, but we want to be skeptical when someone says that because we know there's so many people out there trying to trick us into thinking they can sell us something that will quickly fix whatever problems you have. So very often the way these groups are presented is that any problem you have, we're going to fix it. What's your issues? And everyone has issues. Every human being on this earth has issues. And so when they present it that way, and if they can get you into this magical thinking about the group, and usually the way people get into a group like this is others who've done the group will will tell you about it. And again, you can get things out of the group, don't get me wrong, but it's very often presented as you're going to get rid of all your issues if you do this. And so we have to be always skeptical of that when someone tells us something like that. So they'll let you know whatever it is you're dealing with. We have the, sometimes they'll use words like technologies, Nexium they did and other ones. Technologies, which makes it sound very um, scientific and sometimes there is some science behind what they're talking about. It makes it seem like there's something, technology also makes it seem like it's something they have that others don't have and so if you hear or do what see what they say it's going to change your life and others don't have access to it uh, we use these technologies and you're just going to be a different person and this taps into a few things one is the magical thinking that we can have that there is this thing this power uh, sometimes i'll tell you about the person who's created it and how they are just wonderful wonderful is an understatement they're usually godlike you know use words like guru but they sometimes feel that they are enlightened in some way, have some genius or spiritual abilities that no one else has. And so his or her, and usually it's his, teachings are going to just, you know, save your life because he is enlightened. In this case of Keith Ranieri, he was, um, he boasted of having a 240 IQ. I'm not sure uh, exactly how that's possible, what that means. I did read somewhere that it was based on a take-home type of a test or a test you do on your own that's an honor system but anyway um, i'm not sure what that means of having an iq of 240 and i think literally he would say i'm the smartest man in the world um, and so if you buy into that if you buy what he's selling about himself well then it's that he has the answers he knows things that others do not he's the smartest person in the world and interestingly in a way by putting that out there first it can give you if you believe it this trust in him but then you also can start to feel like well if i disagree with him does that makes me stupid to disagree with the smartest man in the world means i'm dumb or i'm missing something or maybe it's too complex for me to understand and that also helps in the process of making things that seem really strange or bizarre somehow feel like maybe they're right because if this guru the one who's enlightened is saying it it must be so advanced that i can't even understand it or it seems wrong but it's actually right and that's usually once you've really bought in very strongly that you start doing these mental gymnastics to to make anything you want to be true or anything that is more comfortable for you to be true to be true but that's what we see this sense that I'm going to uh, say whatever and you can you'll take it as truth and we can find a way to say anything 
is true. Because if I do something that is hard for you, say, well, he's just challenging me to be better. If I say something that feels good, well, it just feels good. If I say something that's hard for you to understand or doesn't quite make sense, you think, I have to think longer to understand it. I have to process this, to ponder this. If I see something, uh, say something completely contradictory, you can tell yourself, wow, it's so amazing that how I thought it was, it's exactly the opposite. So if you've given this person, and of course they self-proclaim it, and then the people who surround them talk about them in this way, there's usually a way of talking about the leader with so much respect and reverence and that he's magical, he's touched their lives in ways that you wouldn't believe, he's transformed them, that when you're just around him, you feel something, that he's special, that he has some gift, that he's not like everyone else. And so we have this interplay where the person wants to come off that way and, and draws people to them who want to find someone who is that way. We are looking for some savior to fix all of our problems. I'm so broken, we all think, and someone is going to fix that. Uh, and that's what we're looking for. And it's, so we have to be very aware, something I've repeated re a bunch of times recently, no one can do the thinking for you. You can never stop thinking for yourself. Even as I do this show and people listen, and I hope they get something out of it, but I hope they always listen with a critical ear and mind that they hear what I'm saying and they reflect on it and see what makes sense, what doesn't make sense for themselves. And that you have to first of all see what makes sense for you. And also, I just could be wrong in general, not just about your own personal experience. But in these cases, when you enter these types of environments, you are expected and the culture and you know we talk about cult but there's a culture that we don't challenge what the guru is saying and after the break i'll also talk a bit about some of the ways they challenge you if you challenge something or the way you can get attacked when you you say something that is against the group or especially against the leader in some ways and the the gaslighting and the ways they manipulate things to get you to feel like you are wrong or bad if you are missing something or not seeing something. So I'll continue talking about things related to cults, but especially about um, the self-help type of groups with gurus that turn into cult-like behaviors or experiences. Uh, and, and specifically, I was talking about The Vow, which is a docu-series on HBO. Let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the first segment, I was talking about the docu-series The Vow, or some thoughts on that, where we see um, a self-help group that turns into a, a cult. And, you know, when you see something like this, you can imagine how or try to imagine why would people get sucked into this. But as I mentioned, it, it's a little bit easier said than done to think that I would never let that happen to me. And with these types of things, first you get a little bit sucked in, but slowly you get immersed in the culture that is there and it affects you in ways. And when we're in a group setting and around people and especially over time, it could really distort the way you see things. And even I did one of these types of groups, I think it was about 11 years ago. Uh, yeah, probably 10, 11 years ago. And I did a few of the different types of classes. And 
first of all, I did gain some things out of it. So like I said in the first segment, it's not all bad things. There, there can be good things in them for sure. And for some people, it can be very meaningful. And I don't want to take that away from them. I think when, like anything, when it gets too extreme or you get too involved with it, it can be concerning and starts to have some negative effects in the ways that you are seeing yourself and the world and actually how connected you are to the world. Um, but you can have some good experiences from it. But I, I went through something like this and it was three different courses and one of them was more lengthy type of an experience. And when I look back, there were times that I got uh, sucked into certain degrees to, to seeing things in a certain way or um, the ideas of the group affecting me in ways that when I look back, I think, wow, why did I get that into certain parts of it? I, I was very skeptical even throughout, but still I can see how I got affected by um, being part of the group, wanting to be accepted by the group and, and, you know, getting in some ways even manipulated by things that were going on that now I would think and hope I wouldn't get manipulated by. But then I, I did have some impact of that. So I say that to recognize that it's very easy to judge someone in some situation not the same but similar to like an abusive relationship where people think how could you let that happen or he or she must actually like it if they're still in the relationship or various things that we say to ourselves to justify that we would never let that happen to us but we don't recognize the dynamics that are in play that when you start to create a relationship and then with that relationship create a certain type of reality it's very different than when you look from the outside so people they get into the group with hopes of fixing themselves and this is a in some ways an easy sell because as i mentioned previously we all have issues everyone has issues so if someone says hey we have the solution most people can be drawn to that it's very exciting and appealing to think someone has those answers and it is done in a way that feels kind of magical but that taps into our sense of magical thinking which we all have but especially if we've seen some uh, trauma or disruptions in our de development in early childhood especially uh, you know five six years of age you might say but other ages as well you might see that we're more drawn towards this wanting of magical thinking that there is something that's just gonna you know like a fairy tale and the fairy you know the uh, someone comes and casts a spell on us or uh, gives us a wish and we all of a sudden become a different person. And so they sell this idea very often of the, the human being at its full potential, which I'm all about too. I think something I try to discuss on my show and something in my work with clients is to help bring out more of their potential. But often it's sold in this absolute type of way that we're going to get rid of all your fears, all the things that hold you back, everything's just going to go away, and then you're going to be 100% you uh, at your fullest potential, which reminds you of when people say things like, oh, you know, we only use 10% of our brain at any time. Imagine if you used all 100%. And there's no basis for this 10% uh, of your brain thing. I've heard it uh, since I was uh, younger, I don't remember how long ago, but it's been many years that I've heard it, and it's almost taken as some kind of fact. But when you look at neuroscience, they don't talk about using 10% of your brain, and it matters what you're doing. It's also like if you were walking, you used your arms to a certain degree, but if you were using your arms 100%, it might be actually bad. So it's not this very clear thing to say you should be using all the parts of your brain all of the time. 
they they function in different ways or your brain functions a certain way but there's no uh, evidence to this but we have this tendency to believe almost like we have some untapped superpowers and they tap into that in these types of groups to make you feel like you know what you you can it also reminds you actually of speed reading we all can read uh you know a hundred pages in a few minutes if we just knew the techniques and we're going to teach you the techniques and we feel like we have this or that our memory can somehow remember everything everything is tape recorded and we're going to get everything out and you can repeat everything that ever happened in your life which is also not true so there's ways that they try to tap into your own narcissism in a way a narcissism that's a defense towards your own feelings of not being strong or not having enough or being enough that we compensate with but i have these insecurities these weaknesses but actually maybe i'm like a superhero maybe i am so amazing that they're going to help me bring out that and we all do have more to contribute and i think no human being has really met their full potential in their life if you look at doing everything they could to grow and express themselves in some idealized way but it doesn't mean there's a simple solution that's going to make that happen and make that change but they sell you that and you think well why not you spend a few days sometimes a few thousand dollars or maybe a few hundred depending on the type of course and they're going to help you uh, bring this out and the events themselves can really bring you a feeling of like a euphoria because you're in this group and everyone is uh, sharing love and talking about their goals and dreams and making them feel so real you almost feel like you've already accomplished your dreams and they really do a good job of that and that can suck you in even more before that at times there are parts where they break you down uh, almost in insulting ways some of my experience was even like that disrespectful I, I would say you know putting you down and again we all can succumb to this you don't have to and some won't no matter what but especially in these kinds of environments where it becomes part of what's expected where they put you down and of course we all have insecurities so if someone says you're this you're lazy you don't do enough you don't this you come up and you show up to me like you're a da 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 da, -da whatever it might be it can tap into insecurities that you have and also if you're told that the person telling you is knowledgeable and insightful um, you feel like wow they really see me and it can tap into those insecurities you have so if someone tells you you're lazy and you feel like I do waste time everyone does but you might have some insecurity about it or you think wow I really could be more productive you'll think they're right and they have the right to tell me and this is some tough love to make me grow when really they're just putting you down and tapping into some insecurity that almost everyone can have or that we all can feel but they make it feel very real and very big and you feel like almost I don't have the right to fight back or this is good this is helping me uh, and it makes it very easy for them to to further that by coming at you in that way so unfortunately they very often will in some ways break you down by saying very human things you know sometimes I would joke um when people would ask me that you know you're studying psychology can you read my mind you could just say a very generic thing like you know i can kind of see that you're confident like you believe in yourself but deep down there's these insecurities that hold you back from doing what you really know you can do or want to do and you just know that if you can get past those things there's so much you can share with the world and i would say that to someone and sometimes they'll be like wow how did you know that and it's like that's true of everyone basically everyone has these types of feelings 
or almost everyone, but most people have this sense that, yeah, there's some things that hold me back from being even greater. Like, yeah, that's being human. We all have that. We all uh, make mistakes or don't try things or have fears of failure, fear of this and that, that get in the way. That's pretty human, but they can make you feel like they're seeing you. And that can be very uh, impactful in making you buy into the whole thing. Now, looking at the the leaders of these groups, it's interesting because, of course, there's a huge narcissism there um, that I want to be a god and be godlike. And they'll tell you that they are somehow smarter than you know. They might, in some implicit way, acknowledge they're not perfect. This is an interesting thing you'll often see where they say, of course, I'm not perfect. I make so many mistakes. But very rarely will they tell you about a specific one or acknowledge that they have some weakness now. So it's in this way of showing humility in some way of also showing how uh, a, f a false humility and showing somehow that they are human like you in a way so you can connect but they rarely will tell you i still struggle with something a and you know this in some ways can contribute to this godlike feeling that they don't have any issues they've solved everything because of course they're selling you some quote unquote technology or techniques that is going to fix all your problems. So of course they've done it with themselves and proved it. And that's why they are this amazing thing. And so they take on this godlike quality. Um, clearly there's an insecurity underneath that that makes them want to be larger than life in this way. In this case of Keith Ranieri, you can see such a strong anger towards women. Um, later in the later uh, episodes of the show, they show some of the behind the scenes talking down to women, these classes he created where women were being basically disrespected uh, because they were needed to learn that really young boys have it the hardest. So they have to understand that pain to understand men to then really uh, create some kind of balance between men and women or to advance society. But it's just really men disrespecting the women. And clearly it seems to be a reflection of his own experience of probably feeling very weak or small as a boy and potentially having some issues with either his mom or with other women where he's just taking out this anger on them. And the way he's treating them and talking about them, it's very clear there is this anger there. And it's a reminder that everyone is human, even if, like, let's say he's a great teacher. He had some good concepts, but he was really, he's a monster when you look at what he was doing. Um, but it doesn't mean they don't have their own issues or insecurities that are always going to color the way they see things. Me included, everyone you hear speaking, you might think they're being objective and they're trying to be. It doesn't mean everything is pure bias, but we all have experiences that color the way that we see things. And I remember taking a class in a graduate school that was very eye-opening for me, where I was looking at different theorists in psychology and recognizing that the theories they came up with to explain human beings, human behavior, therapy, they were affected by both the historical context and culture that they grew up in and also their own unique experiences and what they went through in their family dynamics. So if someone had the, you know, a bad relationship with their mother, again, I don't know exactly what this, this gentleman's relationship was, we can understand that that would lead to this way of wanting to disparage them or put them down or overpower them later in his 
life. It would make sense that he would be uh, wanting to do that, but it could just seem like, oh, it's just objective because he's so brilliant. So this is the reality of the world and not realizing himself, possibly not realizing, but others not realizing this could be a reflection of something in him that's bad rather than something in him that's good. And so again, no one knows everything. Um, everyone is wrong about things. I'm actually looking, I mentioned again, and I'll say it again, Einstein was wrong about things related to science, even though he might have been the great, greatest scientist of the 20th generation. Whoever you think is a great scholar in whatever area or field will make things or statements in that field that are not true. And also, of course, about things that are not related to what they studied. And we have to be open and ready to accept that that as much as we like to idealize someone, someone who's very wise and knowledgeable and smart is still wrong sometimes. And that doesn't mean they're not knowledgeable. It means they're human. And all human beings are fallible, have their biases and have their uh, miscalculations or misjudgments about things. It doesn't mean they can't still be great, but it means they are still human. And we have to never lose sight of that. So if you're in some group and you're get the sense that the leader can't be challenged. That's a big problem. And we do see that. Thankfully, leadership is moving in the direction where people recognize this. And a strong leader isn't one that never says they are wrong or won't allow you to challenge them. But a genuine strong leader will allow you to challenge them, will acknowledge their real mistakes and share them with you, will acknowledge they're still trying to grow or understand certain things and they don't know everything. I posted this quote recently from what I talked about on the show that a wise man once said, I don't know a wise person, man, woman, that because that's someone who's wise understands they don't know everything. And one way this plays out in these types of groups, and I even had this experience, is that if you ever challenge the group or challenge the leader, so let's say you disagree and say, I don't think that's right what you're saying or what you're doing is wrong to people, they turn it back on you. So they'll say something like, oh, you think uh, what the leader is doing is, is unfair to people or in the group? Well, where else does that show up in your life that you're not trusting of people? And so it's this very uh, manipulative type of gaslighting where it's that instead of talking about what you're seeing and how there could be some validity to it, it's assumed that the leader can't be wrong. So if you are having some issue with it, this must be your issue. And so, of course, if someone says, do you ever not trust People, I think sometimes you don't trust, you said your mom or your dad, you didn't trust them a little bit, right? Now they make it about you. And again, they take advantage of the fact that you're not perfect, which no one is. And so you start to think, oh, wow, yeah, maybe this is my thing. Maybe this is me again, uh, having a judgment that's getting in the way of my life. Where else does this show up in your life? How else does this get in the way of your life? Not trusting others. And we've all had issues with trust. Some might have obviously more significant ones, but we all do. And so it's this very um, impactful and unfortunately, uh, oftentimes successful way of getting people to realize or think they're realizing that what they're feeling isn't about what the leader is doing or what the material is about, but about their own weakness. Oh, this is good. This is showing us your issue related to trust or your issue related to uh, letting go or let uh, you know your issue of whatever it might be and so they put it back on you and you can feel very stuck like, oh yeah and they are and you know here's where the manipulation goes another step usually you've been involved with the group in some ways and you've opened up about so many things they know your sensitive point so they know they can say oh is this maybe about your mom and how she left when you were five? Oh yeah we know that trusting is is so scary for you 
imagine if you were in a world where you could trust and believe that the people around you were actually trying to help you because we're trying to help you. Haven't we helped, you know, and they can just go on and on with this type of uh, kind of quote unquote logic to get you to feel like I'm the problem here. I'm the issue. And, you know, kind of like a immune system. Uh, when I was in the group and you see it, anytime someone challenges, everyone just attacks that person so fast, like they have to just get rid of that so quickly, which is probably for multiple reasons, including the fact that probably everyone inside of themselves is having a hard time believing everything that they're being told or everything that's happening. So they have their own doubts inside that are being triggered. And so they can't handle that because of the cognitive dissonance of, no, this is the leader, this group's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, nothing can change that. And unfortunately, um, they'll try to snuff you out as quickly as they can. You can't disagree. And if you do, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? I remember having some experiences where I would share things that weren't making sense when I was in the group and just everyone would attack me to the point where one time I was literally arguing that isn't sleep important because people were not getting enough sleep in the group and they're saying that's okay and doesn't matter and for months even if they don't get enough sleep and so I challenged this and I was just quickly attacked by everyone from uh, different types of leaders and there's usually different tiers to the individuals in the group that why was I saying this or how could I say this and what was wrong with me that I was saying something like that, that sleep uh, is an important part of taking care of ourselves. So um, it's an interesting dynamic and culture that can develop. And yes, it can be cult-ish and you can have this sense when you can't challenge the leader, when everyone has to think the same way, when the leader's uh, personality and who they are and also their teachings are untouchable and unquestionable. These should all be things that make you feel a little bit skeptical. So again, it's not to say self-help transformation is not good. It can be very helpful and good and you can get a lot out of different types of classes. Uh, you know, heck, I've done seminars myself uh, where I hope people come and, and get something out of it. But you want to be very aware of when you get sucked into some of these things that at times they can have um, some nefarious, and in this case of uh, Nexium, we saw some horrible things. I didn't even get to all of that, and maybe that's okay. It would have been a, a spoiler if I told you some of the things that happened there, and I, I recommend you check out the docu-series yourself called The Vow. Um, but sometimes some very horrible things are happening. Doesn't mean everyone has those intentions, but just some things of uh, uh, words of warning to be mindful of that when you're joining some kind of group or when you find yourself so much wanting to find that quick fix that's going to take your problems away, be aware that usually it's not going to be that simple. And that means that either they're selling you something or they're selling you themselves to turn into your guru or your God. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back, studio number 310-441-0555. Let's bring on a caller, Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi there. Hi, thanks for calling. Oh, thank you for your time, Dr. Farid. My pleasure. How can I help you? Let me know what the question um, is. Actually, I have two questions, um, uh -huh. one about myself and the other about my daughter. I um, I asked my, about mine uh, first. Um, okay. I am a fifty-two years. I am fifty-two years, and I uh, came to the United States about uh, five years ago. 
and in that time, you know, I was very stressful and I had a lot of anxiety and I didn't have any access to the um, clinical health. So I was very lucky that uh, became familiar with uh, your dad and you on the radio. So I tried mm-hmm. to um, listen to your both uh, and I understood that I need um, clinical health. So I didn't have good insurance. And I had chance to go to the doctor about um, two years ago. It was a good insurance, and um, they uh, gave me some uh, medication for my uh, stress and depression. It was okay. very helpful, and uh, I told that because of your book, you know, I was listening to you and your dad. I helped myself a lot. Okay. So uh, I could uh, be very better and, you know, came out of my deep depression. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, when I talked to my, uh, it was just my family doctor that gave me medication. Uh, I diagnosed with cancer about uh, one year ago, and they want to start my medication for cancer. And my oncologist told me that um, your your medication, you know, you should change your medication, and I think your anxiety is not as good as enough uh, that uh, your family doctor can uh, prescribe you, so they refer me to a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was talking to my psychiatrist, because I was t- uh, listening to you, I asked her if she could uh, get the uh, an MPI test but uh, she asked me some questions, and because of the answer, she told me you don't need to have that test. Mm-hmm. And I should say, because of my uh, family story, uh, I'm, my dad, uh, as I remember, had a deep depression, had uh, some uh, shock therapy, uh-huh. and I knew before that, was a person who, who was very, you know, he had sometimes had very high energy, you know, and I don't know what's the diagnosis with him because he died when I was uh, 15. Mm-hmm. And I knew that, I heard that because we didn't have any relation with my dad's family. I even, I, I don't know them, but I've heard that my uncles and one of my cousins have some problem too. I know my cousin diagnosed with bipolar. So my, uh, when my psychiatrist didn't accept to have uh, the test from me, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, which problem I have, if I am a bipolar or not. Well, let me give you some, let me just, uh, you know, because you shared a lot of things that I want to make sure I address some of them. The first thing, as they recommended to you, I I would always, and I don't know if we're on speakerphone, I'm getting some um, feedback from you. Are we on speaker? Uh, No, no, I'm not on the speaker. Okay. Okay. Maybe. Okay. Uh, no, no, that's not. I don't think it's anything you're doing. Um, so you know, the the first thing is when it comes to getting medication for a psychi- psychological psychiatric issue, I would always recommend seeing a psychiatrist. Uh, I think 60, 70 percent. I've seen different statistics of psychiatric medications are prescribed by general practitioners or the family doctor, uh, but this is not 
the ideal or what we would want to do because the psychiatrist of course specializes in these issues and can be much better at doing that than getting it from your general doctor now um, as far as your treatment and i hope i don't know how the cancer treatment is going i wish you all all the best in that um but we we do have to be aware of the interactions of medications and there are even some psychiatrists i don't know if the one they recommended to you who specialize in working with um people dealing with cancer treatment so like an oncological psychiatrist and that would be obviously recommended so they really know the different types of interaction effects of medications with the types of treatment and medications you'll need for your cancer now as far as the mmpi goes testing um like that it's not something usually a psychiatrist is going to do if they're just going to try to get a diagnosis and prescribe you medication it's not very common they don't usually do that type of testing unless someone you know for some forensic reason or some specific reason needs to get a a lot of testing done but usually it's not something so i would not at all be concerned about that that the psychiatrist did not want to do the mmpi they usually don't you know these things you're saying are the things that he or she will want to know your family history it can be very important but then also what symptoms you have yourself to share with the psychiatrist of what you're going through so i don't think there is a need for the mmpi uh for you and so don't be at all discouraged by the psychiatrist not wanting to do that. And especially, you know, the psychiatrist, you can make that request. Of course, you're the patient, but often the doctor doesn't want you to tell them what to do. You can make a suggestion and hopefully they'll be open to it. But, you know, they probably do things a certain way that works for them. And, and I would I would trust that. And in this case, like I said, not taking the MMPI is not something I'd be concerned about. That's a personality test or inventory but it does talk about some psychopathology or tell us some things but usually used as a diagnostic tool it's not usually the case so it's not that they need to give you that to give you a diagnosis and then prescribe you the right medications but i think it's good that you're seeing a psychiatrist and and go forward with what they say okay thank you so much and sure. hopefully i to write from my cancer after surgery I ho- and, oh. you know, yes, it's very nice. Yeah, I, w- I hope you do. Okay. I hope you do. And, and of course, as I'm sure you know, it could, obviously, physically, it has such an impact, but um, emotionally, mentally itself, it can have big impacts too. Many people dealing with cancer have can get depression or uh, more anxiety that you're experiencing. So I hope you'll do everything for all aspects of your treatment and, uh, and of course, wish you the best with that. Actually, um, it was very nice that I got cancer after I had my medication for my uh, anxiety and depression for about uh, six or seven months. So, and I was um, continuing to listen to you and your dad. So I was mm. ve- I was in a very very good situation that I I was very you know open to accept any truth. So um, when they told me. Uh, that you you have got cancer and should go through the treatment and surgery and uh, it was nothing for me it was i was very relaxed and accept that i went to a trip before my surgery and after that every time when i had um, any appointment just like you know um, to, to be in a doctor i tried to have a very good thing i was very relaxed and i'm not sure what my brother-in-law told me oh i think you are a bipolar because every person then uh, and they are in this situation, and uh, they are very stressful, but you are very relaxed, and I was, 
So I'm not sure if it was if it was true or not. I'm not well, sure. Well, um, well, let me say some comments. I mean, what you shared seems like um, you have a very strong or resilient attitude about. Um, you're, what you're going through, like even the way you said, oh, it was good timing, or you know, most people would never say would not say that it's uh, never a good time. I think for anyone to get that illness, but it's it's good that you're able to at least try to see the good in it, if if that feels good to you. You know, bipolar is not something where you're just in a good mood about something or for a period of, uh, you know, for a long period of time. When you have that good mood, like the mania, the high of the bipolar, you are. Uh, you know, you need less sleep. You are in a, you have a very elevated mood and feel good uh, all the time about yourself. You might even make risky decisions, bad decisions in your life because of that feeling. It's not just being uh, optimistic as it seems like you were describing, but what makes, what would make you think you have bipolar other than what your father-in-law said? My, yes, my brother-in-law, he told me because he was with me my my husband is a disabled person so uh -huh. he was with me in uh, when when i want to have when i had an appointment uh -huh. so he told me oh, you are very relaxed you are laughing it's, it's just um, you know it seems that you are you are having a very ordinary uh, treatment you are going to the surgery they are going to you know uh, ambulate in your body but uh, you don't care about that. And I said, yes, because I heard from Dr. Fried and his dad that they told me, we are, we are doing our best. There's no matter what the result. I don't think about the result. I just put on the doctors and I'm going through the treatment. I, I'm, I'm not anxious. Um, and he, when he told me that sentence, I said, oh, maybe I am. I'm not sure. I'm, well, I don't know what you're describing. Um, first of all, you're saying you learned, maybe you could say for my father, and I mean, but you're saying also me, I can't, I don't want to claim that I've taught you something that is more advanced than I don't know if I could do that. What you're saying is very um, not easy to do, to have that kind of attitude when you're going into surgery or some kind of treatment. So uh, I appreciate that you're saying it was from from us, but I think, I hope you give yourself a lot of credit for being able to maintain that type of mindset or spirit when you're going through something difficult so he was surprised it seems that he expected you to be in a very negative state of mind very anxious very sad but you weren't it's not clear to me from just what you shared if what you were experiencing is some kind of illness it's kind of funny that uh sometimes something that might be good because we're not used to seeing it we might think it's something's wrong with you you know why are you in such a good mood uh which is funny because usually when someone's in a bad mood we think they're not doing well but i, I don't know if it was just you were trusting of the professionals who are going to take care of you which i think makes sense there's nothing you can do you can't control your surgery or your treatment in those ways so it's better to trust and just let them do what they've been trained and educated to do and, and let them handle it. Easier said than done very often, but if you can do that, great. So uh, to me, it doesn't sound like something alarming. Um, I, I've sometimes seen people, it doesn't seem like this is what you're describing, where because they're so worried about people around them or always being positive around people, they might be really sad or scared inside, but they'll show they're really happy for the people around them. But that doesn't seem like what you were describing there. So you're saying you really did feel okay going into the treatment? Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. If you felt, oh, I mean, I don't, that itself does not, uh, you know, alarm me. Maybe your, uh, I think you said brother-in-law was surprised, but um, I don't think it's, it's something alarm. really bad. Because when yeah. I was talking to my doctor about the ambulating, ambulating, you know, I had a breast cancer. So um, when I was talking to my uh, surgeon and uh, lab and they talk about that if I want to do implant and, and I don't want, you know, I, um, so... And because of this uh, reaction, and even when I want to go to the uh, surgery room, I was laughing and hit them, and I said, Baba, I will see you. And then I mm-hmm. opened my mind. I didn't care about my body, and I was laughing. I said, oh, I have some age, uh, but, you know. And I, I, I just thought it, you know, I thought it's very normal. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I think it's um, it's hard to say exactly what, uh, from my perspective, what you're going through, but it seems like you had accepted it, which it can be hard for people to do, and people do it at different times. Some people might not be able to, and we're just looking at it, well, this is parts of my body, and it's, it is part of you, but in a way not part of you, too. How did the doctors seem to respond to how you were? Did they seem okay with it, or were they surprised? Yes. No, it was very okay, and um, no, no, they they weren't surprised and asked um, about something. Uh, he uh, he was uh, actually a surgeon, plastic mm, uh-huh. surgery that we talk about that, and mm-hmm. he laughed, and uh, you know he was agree with my decision uh, because I didn't uh, decide to have an implant because I told I'm going through a big uh, and, you know process. I don't want to challenge with other ones because I yeah. heard that maybe we have infection if we want to do that. So, and he was say yes, you are right. And, you know, we, um, because I have a sense of humor, I said, put something and we laugh. No, it was very, okay. it was very yeah. normal. I mean, the, yeah, the doc. Yeah, of course, the doctor has met with many patients, and I'm sure he, he's seen different reactions. But, you know, it seems like he was joking with you and enjoying it. And you were trying to make light of a dark situation, possibly. But to me, it doesn't seem... Um, like definitely not something wrong and I think you um, you know responded in a way that was good for you and that's good and for your brother-in-law was surprising but that doesn't mean him being surprised means it was something unhealthy that doesn't sound like bipolar to me at all like I said sometimes someone might hide some of their feelings for different reasons or we compensate and if we're actually scared we might act like we're not scared or something but it doesn't seem like it was that either to me it sounds it sounds okay and I, I actually really can commend your attitude that you were trying to accept that this is the reality this is what's going to happen to my body I'm going to have to accept it and that's okay and I don't know if you know you mentioned your husband having a disability there could be a way that you look at your body slightly differently or experiencing him having a disability might have had some kind of a positive impact in how you can be okay with something happening to your body do you think that's possible Mm, i'm not sure about that because you know my husband's uh, disability uh, actually um, it's not a big deal for me i've never uh, think about that okay Um, what if i may ask what is his disability Oh, he went to coma about 30 years ago, and he got mm. C, um, CPM disease, even the coma, it's a very rare disease, and it caused uh, his uh, upper kidney um, hormone level, so, and thyroid, all together, um, um, caused that after coma, he couldn't uh, move, and the doctor told mm. that 
he would have a planet uh, living, but uh, because he was a you know very strong man and he had um, you know and he tried a lot, exercised a lot, uh, and uh, a lot of you know treatment. He could walk, but because of mm-hmm. his muscles are very tight. Uh, because of this disease, okay. and you know, um, he should use walker. He cannot talk good. It's mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. obvious. So it's a kind of disability. I see. Okay. Well, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I I was wondering if that had some impact in some even positive way of how you viewed your own body and being okay. Of course, it's it's challenging. It's very personal. But from what you're describing, it seems like you were just accepting of your reality, which is one of the most important things we can do, but oftentimes very hard for us to accept and we don't want to accept it. So uh, I didn't hear anything concerning in what you, you said. You know, we're past the commercial break and we could talk more about this. I know you said you also have a question about your daughter. So we're going to put you on hold and I'll bring you back after the break, okay? okay I have one. I, I didn't ask my question, my main question about my set. Thank you so much. Okay, sure. Okay, we'll be Thank right you. back. Thank you. Welcome back. Let's go back to our caller. Caller, are you still there? Hi there. Hi. So you said you wanted to share, uh, we'd talk about your health and then also getting some um, meeting with a psychiatrist, uh, but you said you had a question that we didn't get to yet. Yes, and now I am in relation with my psychiatrist and oncologist about the medication. And my Good. psychiatrist, uh, you know, refer me to a uh, psychology. And just we start to talk. I think we had just one session, and um, you know, I don't know what should I ask from my psychologist because when we was talking, and my main problem is my daughter, and I was talking to her about that. After mm-hmm. that. Mm, you know, mm, she asked me that, uh, what do you want to do at, for, at, you know, in this psychology? And I really don't know what should I ask because now I think further to my daughter, I have some problem too. Although I try to, my, to increase my knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, and have medication. Uh, recently, again, I thought I have more anxiety, um, and I'm not sure if I ask her to, you know, because I have a very bad childhood, I have a very mm. bad uh, family history, so I'm not sure how can I manage the session, because I thought some psychi- psychologists are not as professional to manage the session, so maybe I can help. Uh, to the session and you know go through the right way and get well, the best help from her <laughs> well i think it's good obviously i want you to get the best help from her but you're gonna it's gonna be important to let her give you the best help and to trust her just like you trusted your uh, medical doctors you know it can be important to trust her and i want to be careful since you're seeing her not to you know analyze too much or tell you what you might be feeling or things that are going on because of you're working with her but it it seems like it's hard for you to even let her or trust that she can take care of you or handle what you've been through and so what i would recommend is to go in there as is the case with everyone being as open and honest and being as open as you feel comfortable being but trusting the, the therapist to take care of you. You don't need to um, 
take care of the session or make sure you do enough. It, it seems like this is your tendency of taking care of others that even in your therapy you want to take care of her. Dr. Farid, because the last, before this lady, I had another psychologist from this insurance. He, he, um, she was not a psychologist, she was a counselor. When I uh -huh. went to her, she asked me, so I'm here just to listen to you and uh, I said, oh, so what do you do next? And she, she told me, I'm just listening here and I'm here just to listen to you. And he, she didn't um, give me any, she didn't ask me anything that, uh, you know, that uh, can manage the session and go through the problem. So after that, I uh, start to listen to you and your dad. And I found, oh, this, so I left, I didn't go back to that lady. So I, um, you know, when I listen, I found, oh, some of my problems is this, is that. I didn't have chance to talk to your dad because, you know, because it's very busy, that phone every time. So, but I try to listen every day and your session too. So I mm -hmm. found some of my problems. Now, this lady is a psychologist, and I thought this was the, uh, the first session. But I thought maybe just like the other lady, because she didn't ask me many main questions that you and your dad used to ask about uh, the people. And, you know, yeah. even the people don't know what's the problem. Sure. But wrong. so let me. You will find that. No, but so let me, you know, the thing also to keep in mind is. Um, you know, I, I see clients in therapy and the way I, therapy is different from when you call into something like this kind of a show or my father's show. So if you expect that from the therapist, you're almost never going to get that. And really you shouldn't. It's a different thing than when you call in. So I don't want you to think that because this psychologist is not being so direct or asking you so many questions, that means she's not good or can't help you. It, it's just something to remember that therapy is different. This is not therapy, what even me and you are doing. Does it have some elements that can be similar? Yes, but it's not the same thing. So you shouldn't expect the, the session to look like this kind of a call or a call that you hear with my father because it's a different type of a thing. So I, I wouldn't be so concerned. A lot of the therapist does listen, but of course we'll ask questions, we'll have suggestions. But a lot more of it is listening, and I would trust, and you know, trust is something you build slowly, but I hope you can give her some level of trust to share with her more and more and see what you're going to get from her. And, you know, one session is not even really, um, it's not even starting, you know, it's like doing pre-operation stuff. It's not even getting into it. So it, it takes some time. So again, if you listen to, let's say, my father, and after 15 minutes, they talk about something and he gives some solutions or some suggestions that's not what you should expect from a, a therapy session it's more about a longer process that you build a relationship and, and you'll get something and so uh, i would see if you can let yourself trust her more you could even share your experience maybe you already did with the other therapist and what you didn't like what you're expecting but you shouldn't feel like you need to prepare it's really your space to talk about whatever you want and what's on your mind um i'm i'm wondering if you have this tendency to want to take care of others so even in there you feel like you have to be the one that takes care of everyone or takes care of things but in your you know with the medical doctors you said you were very trusting and i think that's good let them do what they're trained to do and try to do the same thing with her you know she's trained to help you and uh, have some trust and faith in that and at least try for a while 
if after you know a months you see it's not you don't feel anything or nothing feels different then that's something but i wouldn't make a decision uh after one time unless you really didn't like her which it doesn't seem like that's the case i would i would give it more of a chance and don't expect that it's going to be something like even our phone conversation or what you might see uh, or hear on my father's show um, yes you know maybe because of my english uh, i didn't tell my you know uh, demand directly and, and yeah. this um, psychologist asked me um, tell me about your childhood a little bit and then i yeah. told her and um, so after and dad and my problems with my daughter and everything she told me what do you want to do what do you want from this session what do you want yeah. is it is it you know because i trust you and your dad i think everything <laughs> is good <laughs> and because no, of no. the uh, progress you helped me if i if i was not familiar with your dad i didn't grow i didn't go through that at big process of cancer with this optimistic i'm sure i'm sure well i'm happy to hear that but i would trust her too but you know when she's asking you a question and i would ask you the same thing what do you hope to get from the therapy sessions okay you know um, um the first thing um that i uh, you know um although i increased my knowledge and i have medication i was very good but recently i feel some anxiety but i i don't know you know i i'm not i cannot find that you know i help myself a lot but now at mm -hmm. this moment i don't know where it is from because okay. when uh, when i have when i'm in a very you know um stressful i try to use the um, quotation and everything that i heard from you but yeah. now i think it does i'm not sure if i should change my medication i'm not sure what's the problem well, th I, it's, yeah it, it seems that it's, uh, i have a uh, and my anxiety is just not like the you know one and a half years ago. Okay. So. Uh, well, that I mean. If, I, you can, if she can help me. I'm, yeah, that would be great, and I think that's what I mean. You can share that with her. That my anxiety has been higher. You're trying these things, and that's great. But that's why we also can get help from others. That's why she's there to help you with the anxiety. So, I, I would just trust to just share with her. Be as open as you can be about what you're going through and, and say this is what I'm dealing with and again there's a sense of what you're saying I should be able to deal with it on my own or why is what I'm doing not working which I understand if it worked and now it's not working you might have some feelings about that but you don't need to to do it all by yourself that's why she's going to be there um, to help you with that and so I would just trust her that you can uh, share with her what you're going through therapy is a uh, again a process that takes some time but it can be very helpful and make longer lasting changes that can be meaningful so i hope you will give her some trust and uh, and see how much she can help you with what you're dealing with okay sure thank you so much i appreciate it sure sure thank you and i know you know we we're at a commercial break i don't know if you asked about your daughter which you wanted to ask or um, um if it was if you, if you have time you know i can uh, i know it's you know the answer is just sure. like a miracle but um you know my daughter uh, diagnosed with uh, borderline and bipolar and okay so, we had a very so let's challenging time that is i'm sure that is child challenging and so because of that i don't want to just give a, a quick uh, you know make you say it quickly and have a quick answer let's talk after the break so i'll we'll put you on hold again okay sure thank you so much okay all right we'll be right back Welcome back. Let's go back to our caller. Caller, are you still there? 
Yes, sir. Fine. Okay. Hi. So you were you were going to ask about your daughter. How old is she? She's about twenty-one. Twenty-one. Okay. And so you you said she was diagnosed with bipolar uh, and borderline personality uh, disorder. Yes, borderline okay. personality and bipolar type one. Type one. Okay. Which is the more severe yeah. type? Okay. Yes, and I think it was um, because of my family history because she she has got the bad gene, and um, unfortunately, I was not a wise mom, uh, and I was you know because of my deep depression before that uh, I was not you know I was not treating her very good you know sometimes I, I just want to explain that time then I knew that uh, she has some problem she was very aggressive she didn't she left the college and she had panic attacks so. I knew that she has a big problem, and um, uh, she accept to see a psychiatrist and after that uh, psychologist. And she's very, very better now, very, very better now. But after one year, she stopped to see the psychologist. Actually, the psychologist is a Persian one, and she, he. He went to Iran, and after some uh, session uh, in the abs, she stopped that. And I'm not mm -hmm. sure that she's taking her medication medication yet or not, because she doesn't talk to me at all. You know, she hates me, and mm. you know, um, I'm not sure what should I do. I just try to be very, very, you know, nice to her if she tell me everything. I just try to be deaf, just your dad's there every time, mm -hmm. um, but um, nothing worked that I can have a relation with her to, you know, make her courage to um, continue uh, her treatment. So yeah. I'm not sure if I can do something more that she can trust me because I'm sure that my behavior, you know, uh, caused that she make a decision. She, she decided to not have a relation with me. Okay. So, I mean, uh, you know, look, if any kind of relationship, it's, it goes two ways. So the other person has to want to have the relationship. We can't force them, obviously. Uh, we can only control what's on our side. Um, if she has bipolar disorder, bipolar 1, and borderline personality disorder, especially with the borderline personality disorder, unfortunately, one of the things they experience is their relationships are unstable and it is hard to maintain a relationship for them and hard for someone to maintain a relationship with them so uh it's sad that that's the reality of the situation but at some level accepting that it's going to be challenging and even as sad as it might be accepting that you might not have a relationship with her because it's not completely in your control um, you know, you can always just be there for her, support her. As far as encouraging her to go to treatment, so going to treatment is a very personal decision, first of all. But secondly, when we look at advice or taking someone's advice, you know, it's not just about if the advice is good or bad. Really, what's even more important is the relationship you have with that person giving you the advice is going to impact if you want to hear what they say or it's going to influence what you do. So if you tell me you and her don't have a good relationship or any relationship or she hates you, then you have to understand that, you know, what you tell her, even it could backfire or she might not want to do what you tell her to do more than it pushes her towards something. So 
your ability to influence her is limited by how close you are with the person in most cases or at least how much they trust you or are connected to you if you don't have that don't don't put that pressure on yourself i have to get her into treatment i'm going to make her go because if anything it might push her away and push her away from you if you put too much pressure on her um, to have a relationship now you mentioned things you did when she was younger that were not good um you know maybe you already have done that but of course we can always apologize for what's happened if they're angry at us but from what you're telling me just very briefly of those two diagnoses together it's hard to be in a relationship with someone uh who's going through that and and you you know we've talked about accepting things a few times during this call about your own life too but about your relationship with her it it might be something to accept that it's going to be hard to be close with her uh, as sad as that might be Okay, yes, it's, it's not good. So I just try to be supportive and be there for her and, uh, you know, wait very gently that maybe she will ask for help in future. Maybe she'll ask her help. Maybe she'll ask to get closer to you. I mean, yeah, we have to always let them know the door is open, but we can't force them to walk through that door, yes. you know, to come back. And, and even when you say support her, just be aware to not... Um, push too hard because sometimes you know when we think about support support means what the person wants not what how we want to help them so also keep that in mind that you know if you push her it might push her away from you or or push her down right yeah thank you so much i appreciate it nice talking to you but wish you all the best take care oh thank you so much for your time and please give my best regards to your dad i didn't have a chance to talk to him thank you okay i will thank you you too. <laughs> Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. So, uh, you know, some thoughts following up uh, on the topics that that came up. Um, one thing about going to therapy, and I'm happy that she's going and um, encouraging her to go. And I'm always encouraging people to go to therapy. I don't like to say that anything is good for everyone or that everyone should go, but I do think it is a good idea for everyone to go even for a while to therapy and actually for a while, not just once or twice, um, to get something out of that experience. And the reason being that if we really look at the aim of therapy, of course, it's to help with psychological issues or emotional issues and problems, but even at a more basic level, what you're going to get from therapy is better self-awareness, understanding yourself better. And so this distinction is important because sometimes people think that therapy is for people who have quote-unquote problems, which we all have to a certain degree. We all are going to have some issues. Even if it's not a diagnosable mental illness, we all have issues uh, that would be better if we improved on them. Um, And so if we change that mindset that it's not about fixing problems, but it's about self-awareness, well, that's something that everyone could benefit from. And so people, you know, it came up with her in some ways, but not it may not have been the actual issue. But sometimes we don't want to ask for help or we feel weak if we ask for help or especially when it comes to therapy, we feel like it means we're crazy or it's something bad to go to therapy, something we should be ashamed of. Thankfully, there's lots of movements that are making it more normal and normalizing uh, going to see a therapist 
removing or at least reducing the stigma attached with mental illness and seeking out mental health services, those things are good. But I know it's still there. It still holds people back from getting help or from going to therapy. But if we think of it as a process of self-awareness, that can be very different. And then re related to that about not asking for help, well, some people think I can, I can do it myself, right? I can read books, I can meditate, I can journal. And those things are all very good and very helpful. And I think you should do those things, but they don't replace having uh, a therapist, an outside party to observe and make connections and help you understand yourself better. You can see yourself in certain ways that no one else can, but unfortunately you're also limited in some of the ways you can see yourself because it's you. You have biases, we have blind spots, and things that we're not going to be able to see because the same lens you're making your judgments through is colored by certain things that you can't tell are colored because that's, all the, that's the only way you can see the world. But a third person or an outside person in this case can look at things in a way that might give you some insights that you will never be able to come to on your own. Also, a lot of the issues that we have are formed through relationships, either from abuse or even smaller scale things that we've went through. Usually it's through a relationship we've been hurt. And that's another reason why through the relationship of therapy, they can be healed or at least healing can occur. Uh, this is another reason why we can't heal all of the wounds on our own. We need someone else to do that, to help us with that process. So in the process of therapy, you share things that you're thinking, feeling, things you went through, and the therapist will help you become more aware of yourself, your patterns. Uh, what, why do your relationships go the way they go? Um, how do you even feel about yourself, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with others, things like trust? All these types of things can be um, explored and you get a better understanding of them through therapy. And of course, with the understanding, you could then make different choices in your life, um, you know, do different things, be aware of your biases, be aware of, oh, I tend to be attracted to these kinds of people, but it's actually an unhealthy thing. So if I meet someone and I feel an attraction, I want to make sure they're not in this way because I know my pattern. Now I'm aware of it. So that knowledge and understanding and awareness of yourself can make huge impacts on what you choose to do. But what you get in therapy oftentimes is more of that awareness and understanding. And then, of course, you're going to choose what to do outside of that therapy room. Or now it's, let's say, on, on the Zoom call or on the video call because of COVID uh, therapy sessions tend to be uh, virtual now. But you have to then make the decisions in your own life. And that's another, uh, at times, myth or misconception about therapy. Uh, as I mentioned with her, people call a show like mine or my father's or others like this, and they get advice at times and they think, well, if you go to therapy within a few minutes, the therapist should be telling you all sorts of things to do and don't do in your life and make decisions for you. But really, that's not what therapy is about. And that wouldn't be helpful for you in the long run, because you have to make the decisions in your life yourself and to be able to trust yourself and then live with the consequences and learn from the consequences to then keep going forward. But if someone else makes those decisions for, for you, in the short term, maybe it has some benefit, let's say, at times, but in the long term, it's not going to be good for you. You need to be able to do those things yourself. So it's also an expectation to have or to not have, let's say, as far as what you might see 
on, on the radio compared to what you're going to experience with a therapist where it is more about you talking, them listening and exploring what's going on. They'll ask questions to guide you in that exploration, but they're not going to be telling you explicit things to do and don't do um, all the time in making big decisions for your life. So something to be aware of. And also related to this process, you might call a show like mine or my father's and after 15 or 30 minutes you get uh, you know, that's the whole thing as far as what you experience with us. But that's not what therapy is like and what to expect. It is much more of a longer term process that takes time and should take time. Because if you're trying to know yourself better, understand yourself, that is going to take time. And so if we make that our goal, uh, self-understanding, self-awareness, self-knowledge, that takes longer than something that can happen and to build that relationship with the therapist and then to learn more about yourself it will take some time so be ready for that uh people sometimes call and say how many sessions do i need and of course sometimes a specific issue can be dealt with in a certain number of sessions if that's all you want to do and that's not wrong or bad necessarily but really what i'm talking about where i think everyone should go to therapy for uh, a period of time, I'm thinking more like six months to a year, even longer if you'd like, to really spend time to get to know someone. And that's weekly if possible for that long. To really explore who you are, understand yourself better, who you are, what you have in your life, what you want, what you don't like in your life, different aspects of yourself and your history that will help guide you so that it's not to stay in the past uh, when you talk about your past, it's actually to heal your past and also to make sure your past isn't dictating your present and your future because you're unconsciously playing out things that you're not aware of. So without that awareness, you actually uh, tend to live your life in certain ways that are more directed by your past than if you actually face and acknowledge what's going on, understand yourself better, and then you can choose to make different decisions going forward. So I'm a big advocate of going to therapy, have done years of therapy myself, and I'm very happy that I have because I think it's been very meaningful in understanding myself better. Um, and there's still more to understand because it is a journey, but hope at least everyone will do it for some period of time. We all have issues, but even more uh, succinctly, I could say it's because it's about self-awareness and self-understanding, and we all could benefit from that. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, I wanted to switch gears a bit and talk about online comments. Uh, it's something that if you want to see sometimes the darkest parts of humanity or really something depressing, you can go look at the comments to almost any video, any post, you know, that especially if it's popular and has a lot of comments, you'll see some very negative, ugly things on there. And so, you know, this has been studied a lot and talked about a lot, and especially with how heated the political climate is right now. I also wanted to talk about it. Uh, people post something, and of course, there's lots of people in full agreement. You know, it's very polarized, so they're very much on board. And then there's other people that are just so against it and will tell you you're evil and stupid and bad and all sorts of things to believe that or whoever it is saying that, telling it to them. But even in non-political things, you'll just see this very this dark side. And so it can make us think some things, well, is that our human nature? And this reminds me of uh, the book Humankind that I discussed 
recently that was actually saying that human nature is more positive than we sometimes think that it's it's negative things and i think it's both it's we have the possibilities of being good bad kind mean aggressive nurturing We, we all have those possibilities and aspects so i don't think it's that humans are either all good or all bad we have the the possibility and potential for both and different circumstances can definitely bring that out or make that more likely to bring out but also how we live our life what we choose to do and not do can also affect that as well what we're more likely to do as a response is going to be affected by the choices we make the attitude we have the perspective we have um, the habits that we create all those things will have an effect on what we then feel and do in later situations if we turn towards anger with becoming violent that could start to become a reaction that feels normal or okay but we can also respond other ways and make those habits as well so one of the things that we know about uh, people commenting online that makes it easier for them to be so harsh or cruel is that the anonymity we get and that distance that we have of not being seen first of all a lot of times your picture is not there of course but it can be but even on top of that you could have a username so it's not your name so you feel very anonymous and so you can't be in that way seen uh, making this bad action because we know this has a big impact on us that when we're not seen we know no one can see us we feel concealed in some way we are more comfortable turning to doing bad things uh, because one of the reasons or one of the things that does keep us in check in some ways is that the evaluations of others we're very mindful and aware of how people are going to uh, see us even sometimes when they have something that looks like eyes or is eyes in front of a sign let's say that says take one candy people are less likely to take more they feel like someone is watching them even if it's something uh, that's not alive or not active just being watched can affect us and this is part of being human we do get affected by others and being seen we do want to make as much as we can our moral compass be something that's within ourselves that we do what feels right and wrong because we feel it's right and wrong and we think it's right or wrong but we are impacted by others and how they might judge us or if they can or can't judge us if we can't be seen we can't be judged so that's one thing uh, we know actually i'll share another study i thought was so interesting is um you know there's a lot of times these ingenious studies that can help express some aspects of human behavior but from what i recall of the studies they would have a car at a stoplight and they would wait to um, go when the light turned green but then what they would do is they they measured it with cars that were convertibles either being in front of a convertible so i don't know exactly how they made this happen they probably had to drive around and keep trying to make it happen but they would be in front of a convertible and they saw that when the top was down meaning the person was more exposed right if your top of the car is down of the convertible it would take them longer to honk um, at the person to say go 
So it seems like this feeling of honking, which maybe is a little bit aggressive uh, or some people might not like, if you feel like you can be more easily seen, you might wait longer to do it. I thought that was quite interesting, but just another example of how we're mindful of how we're being seen or not seen and that can affect what we do. But so online people can be very anonymous. They can call you the nastiest, the worst thing, and you might not even see or know who they are. And so say, oh, you're such a coward. You would never say that to my face because you're such a coward. You're doing it behind your keyboard with the anonymity of uh, of being unknown by what you're saying. And it is cowardly and it's not good. I'm not saying it's something positive at all. Um, what I also want to look at is the other aspect of it. So, of course, there's the viciousness of what the person is doing and, and the being anonymous and feeling distant and safe in that way, you're in your own bedroom, no one could t touch you really, can make us more likely to act in that way. But the other aspect of this that I also think is important to keep in mind is we're distant from the victim of who we are hurting. So I think a lot of the things that people say, if they were sitting face to face with the person, it's not just about, I want to say these things so bad because it feels good. It's that we wouldn't say it because we would feel bad for the other person. We'd have actually compassion if we were in contact with the victim in some way of what we were going to say. So the distance is not just about protection. It's also about preventing or making it harder for us to have that empathy for that other human being that might feel those that pain or feel what's going on. And so it makes it easier for us to tear them down, maybe discharge some anger, maybe feel better about ourselves in the moment by putting someone else down and maybe feel like we're elevating ourselves, uh, feeling like you're dominating someone, all these different ways that it might feel good in the moment for that person. Um, oftentimes it's because we're not aware of the person we are hurting. And so it's a reminder of that anyone we're talking to is is a human being, which obviously sounds obvious, but we often do forget that, especially online in these types of forums, and even more so when we're talking about public figures, be they uh, politicians or celebrities. Even I've noticed it in myself. I try to really be mindful of not gossiping or backbiting about other people saying negative things. Of course, everyone does it sometimes. I can't say I never have done it. Um, but I do try to be aware of that. But I can notice that I have a different standard when it comes to talking about celebrities or politicians where it doesn't feel the same as I would talking about someone I know or an acquaintance or a friend of a friend. The standard does feel very different. So I think there is this sense to think of them as somehow not as human or somehow it's okay to use ugly language or talk bad or gossip about someone who is somehow public or uh, seen in some way. So there's a dehumanizing. Usually we think of lowering someone and making them less than human. And sometimes that's the case with politicians and things. But sometimes it's also because we've elevated them to some type of status where they're no longer human. And so it could just be a reminder that, you know, everyone we're talking about, obviously, they're a human being. And would I say that about someone, first of all, if they were in my face, and if I saw them as just like everyone else? And usually the answer is going to be no. I don't think the, the really nasty, vicious comments you see online, I think if someone were to say them to someone's face, very, very rarely would they actually do so. And like I said, it's not just because they're afraid that they might get hurt or to be protected, but also because if you're looking into someone's eyes or feeling uh, that connection with them by being close to them, you wouldn't say those nasty things. You wouldn't say that to someone, the victim 
becomes much more real to you as well. And so we have to be mindful of how we operate or uh, you know, what we do when we're online, how we act, and things that can become unfortunately normal. I think, you know, someone's typing these things, lots of people are, you know, sometimes we think we could talk in ways like it's these, only some people are doing it, but lots of people are saying these really horrible, nasty things about other people. And so we have to take our own responsibility and recognize how am I different with how I am online? And how might it be because of being protected and being anonymous? And how much is it because I'm not thinking of the other person as a human being? who's thinking something, feeling something, going through something. And so, you know, people can post almost anything and then people will just come on and be so judgmental towards whoever that is and what they're going through. And I think that's a shame. And about the judgmental piece, something I shared in talking about uh, cults and people who enter these types of organizations, it's very easy to look from the outside and think I would never, that could never happen to me or look back in history and think I would never do this. Or when we talk about experiments in psychology and they say 70% of people did this and people think, oh, I would never do that. Well, you should at least be open to the possibility that if 70% of people did it, it's actually more likely that you would do the thing you thought you would never do. And rather than just judging those people as being different from you and recognizing that common humanity of being a human being, think about what was it that got them to do that and how might I do that same thing to then make sure I don't do that same thing if I'm, I am in that type of a situation because I am human too. I also am human. And so if we can remember that, I think a lot of these things that we say to one another might change. And when we look at even the political issue, very often there's a huge amount of dehumanization that's happening now. Even you see in the ways that people talk about each other of being, um, you know, uh, animals and being monsters and being evil, that's all parts of dehumanizing. You're not talking to another human being who has ideas that might be different from yours or beliefs that are different from yours. You're talking to a monster. And so, of course, you should degrade them. You should talk down to them or even you have to protect the world from them, which really is usually not the case. So just something I wanted to share with everyone. We're getting closer to the election. Of course, people can vote. I already have sent in my vote. I hope you do, too. Um, but things I think are going to get more and more heated as they already are. But I'm actually concerned of how heated they might get when the election comes around and how people are going to respond. So just a reminder that we're all human beings. We're trying to vote for what we think is right. And hopefully we can recognize that common humanity more than we emphasize or focus on the differences. Uh, before I go, another reminder that next Monday or this coming Monday, which is October 26th from 6 to 7 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, I'll be on a panel hosted by the Iranian student group at UCLA, a panel on mental health with psychiatrist Dr. Nasreen Bashiri. It's on my, uh, the flyers on my social media, so go check it out. It's open to the public and on Zoom, so no matter where you are, if the timing works, you can join us and hope to see you on there. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. As always, a big thank you to Ghazaleh in the studio, who allows me to do the show from a distance. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day.